At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Psst. Hey you. Yeah you. Come join our Discord. The Mixing Music Discord server is filled with tons of awesome information and people. People that can help you out and information that can help you grow your business and to help you improve your mixes. So come join us and find the invitation link at mixingmusicpodcast.com. One, two, three. Hello and welcome back to the Mixing Music Podcast. I am your host DK and with me as always is Limitless Lou. I think we might have already used that one. Crap. Well, whatever. It's it's Limitless Lou. <laughs> and uh, you know what? Ian or Kid in the Box has now been interviewing. He said when he sent in his resume and cover letter to interview with us, he also sent in a doc file of all the potential lewd nicknames. And I should have pulled that up before we started recording. Actually, is it? No, it's too late. But yeah, it's, it's too, too late, late now. But we'll do it for the next one. But Limitless Lou, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Glad to have you back because I know for a couple episodes you weren't here. Um, anyway, uh, but. Today, we have a very good episode. This should help you on your learning journey as you have a lot of experience, as you gain experience and learn how to become a better engineer, a better producer, better mixer, better songwriter, blah, 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 just better in life. This is something that um, whenever people ask me questions about specific technical things, I try to answer them in two or three different categories and we're going to talk about that today. How to separate something that you learn on the internet into three distinct categories. And, and this is just the way that I think about it. I'm sure that there are books and researchers have, have shown that there are better ways to categorize things. But this is just one way that I do it. I categorize everything that I learn into practical, principle, and theory. So for example... And we're having anybody on Twitch right now. So we're live on Twitch at twitch.tv backslash DK Mixes if you want to hang out with us Mondays at 2 p.m., starting at 2 p.m. But we were talking about this. Like, for example, on YouTube, there used to be a lot of people that say high pass everything. Okay, so the theory is high pass everything. 
Okay, what is the principle behind that? The principle behind that is we don't want too much low end across a lot of tracks because that can really lower the headroom or it can, yeah, you'll have less headroom by the time you get to master fit. It'll also make your low end really rumbly. So that's the, the principle, right? Mm-hmm. To clean up the low end. Now, practically, is it practical to high pass everything? No, not really. All right, that was a really quick answer. So, <laughs> I mean, it, it's plain and simple for me just because of one reason. If you're going to high pass everything, a lot of people assume that also means that it's a fixed frequency, which is the other part of that uh, theory that was going around on YouTube. Everybody always said cut at 80 hertz, cut at 120, cut at 100. But it was always different numbers, but it seemed to be very um, absolute comments that people were making about that frequencies. You know, they'd say, oh, I always high pass my vocals at 100, which is great. But here's another theory on that. Now you're starting to create buildups in those frequency ranges. So the principle is now starting to be lost in that theory. Yeah. So Braden Flint Masters says, okay, mastering to minus nine LUFS, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay. The theory is... And what they t- say is you want to master everything to around minus 9, maybe minus 8, maybe minus 10, LUFS, which is loudness units, full scale. If mm-hmm. you want to look up what that means, if you don't understand what that means, it's the dynamic range. Mastery engineers will use this a lot. It's basically the average volume between the peaks and the valleys of the waveform. So how basically how loud it is. Um, and audio is. So the theory is keep it around minus 9, LUFS. What is the principle behind minus 9? I think the principle is... You want it to ha- be as loud as possible without losing your dynamics, without it, losing the perception of dynamics. It wasn't necessarily that at the start, though. The main reason was that CDs were being printed at that, and the actual headroom of a disc was ranging around there. So before you could actually print too loud onto a CD, which could actually go louder, most manufacturing standards would actually request minus nine to keep consistency a thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, or whatever that is, right? So with CDs, because it was its own thing, the sta- if the first song is mastered at minus 15, that means the rest of them will be minus 15. Yeah. I don't think minus nine, that, that's more of like, I feel like that's more of a streaming thing from my experience. Yeah. Um, because LUFS, as long as it's within the same range for the entire project, then that's fine. That's why we hear yeah. a lot of records where on the album, it's really quiet compared to other songs on different albums. But um, the album is very consistent, yeah. and uh, some songs are also way too loud. So, so okay. So, what is the practical though? Is minus nine a good number for every single, even within? We'll just stick within one genre. Okay, we'll say hip hop. Mm-hmm. Is minus nine actually practical for every single hip hop song that you come across? Yes. Really? Yes, consistency. Uh, I'm not saying that it's the best option. I'm not saying that it's the worst option. I'm just saying that. Practically speaking, if you wanted your song to compete, maintaining a constant, a consistent volume across your playlist, even if it wasn't Spotify where they normalize everything, let's just say that somebody threw a compilation CD together and they listen to a Drake song and then your song's coming in two loops quieter or two loops louder, then it's just different. And if it's quieter, the issue is that now people assume that that's less quality because the average consumer assumes louder is better. Now... As engineers, we want more dynamics, we want more headroom, we want clarity, we don't want distortion. So we tend to actually go for lower, but we're not the average consumer. We're not who we are marketing to. So I'd rather shoot for consistency and not lose a potential demographic rather than, oh my God, 
I need this headroom. I absolutely have to be quieter. For instance, I'm mastering a jazz album, and they're actually requesting it to be uh, lower than 10 loops. That's pretty normal for jazz and classical. Exactly. Like, minus but that's normal. normal for them. Yeah. So, so you're... Here's the thing, and this is okay. This is actually a really great conversation that we're going to have. I'm actually going to disagree a lot. Okay. And the reason is, is because, for example, uh, I, so I, do, I did my first lesson. I, I started promoting lessons. And I gave Braden, who is one of the, client, one of, one of, uh, the students for the lessons that I do with one-on-one, I gave him a trick hip-hop song. Mm-hmm. It was actually a song that the entire song is no drums except for the chorus. Mm-hmm. So if oh, you get it okay. minus nine mm-hmm. on a hip hop track because of the arrangement, it's going to distort the crap out of the chorus. Yeah. And you, and you cannot get minus nine without destroying it. Yeah. Because most of the song doesn't have drums. So there's nothing to actually give it. So this is why I disagree. I think that if in the same category of there's something playing the entire time, drums and bass are consistent across the entire time, I would agree. And I think that in general, the theory, the theory mm-hmm. is, you, I think you hit the theory right on the head. In theory, yeah. you want to be able to do that. But some songs don't have drums or only have hi-hats or yeah. don't have any sort of bass line. Or some songs have droning bass rather than percussive bass, mm-hmm. where droning bass is going to really lower your L-U-F-S and might have the same perceived loudness as a minus mm-hmm. seven yeah. L-U-F-S. Even though you're only hitting minus nine, it sounds like you're, or you might be hitting minus seven, but it sounds like you're hitting minus nine. Yeah. The same volume as something else, master minus nine. So that's why I say no. The, the impractical, you're going to find it's 100% based on the arrangement of the song and perceived volume is extremely different from metric volume, from mm-hmm. measured volume. L-U-F-S minus nine for a hip hop track is going to sound substantially quieter than an acoustic singer-songwriter with an acoustic guitar and a vocal only mastered at minus nine. Yeah. Acoustic guitar and vocals only mastered at minus nine is going to sound way too loud and distorted compared to a hip-hop mastered at minus nine. No, so, you're right on that. So I but think I that, feel like that's where the battle of like same genre. Yeah. So, so Ian Smith on Twitch says, you can get no drum songs to minus nine, though. Yes, you can. Yeah, you can. I've gotten them to minus five. Yeah, we can do it even louder. But the problem is, when you don't have drums, it's going to sound substantially louder because the dynamic difference without drums is way less. Because remember, LUFS is the dynamic difference. It's the valleys and the peaks. And if if you have drums, there's lots of dynamic difference from the top and the bottom. But if you don't have drums, you're, you're... Dynamics are already significantly lower. So if you do minus nine on a a song with no drums, it's going to be perceived way louder and you're probably going to destroy the dynamics in your song. So here's the thing. So in this mastering thing that I, we did with Braden, the thing was, okay, he got it to minus nine or minus eight, whatever we did, minus nine, minus eight. And, and then I played it back. And it was like, oh, right. The parts with no drums sound great. It sound banging. And then it gets to the parts with the drums. Mm-hmm. Distorted, no no sort yep. of transient, just totally destroyed. Yeah. Sounds like a, a Metallica record in the 80s, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's, but I mean, that's kind of the vibe of metal, though. Yeah, no. For yeah. Ex- but, uh, so, but I mean, the point is, and, and for example, you brought up a really great example of jazz mm-hmm. or classical music. Now, it's very normal to go minus 15, mm-hmm. maybe even lower. Yeah. And very rare to go more. Than because, minus 11. Oh like, minus gosh. 10 is loud. Minus 10 is really loud for yeah. a classical or jazz. Yeah. But it also depends on the jazz, too. 
I mean, you heard the the project. I don't know what kind of jazz you'd consider that. I feel like that's very modern, sexy jazz, but very classy at the same time. Yeah, so I think that there's definitely a lot of nuance in this. Like, So what we're trying not to do is make like blanket statements because the principle is kind of you want to match volumes and have consistent volumes. But that could be based off of perceived volume at the end of the day. Yes. The, the principle is you want to have consistent volume. And I would say that's more about perceived Mm-hmm. LUFS is the measured way of trying to measure volume. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the theory is you want to have minus nine. If you do minus nine LUFS on everything, it's going to be relatively consistent. Practically, I don't think if you have minus nine on everything, the perceived volume is not going to be the same. No. It's not going to be the same. No. Like, uh, it, it's kind of funny. Uh you hear about people clipping and all that kind of stuff to get loudness. I know Bob does that a lot. And I know Bob mixed uh, this jazz album. Um, did you ever see the file? I don't know if I, I... I know you heard the song, but did you actually ever see the the mix file? Uh, I did not. It looks like a sausage. It's a brick wall. <laughs> um, Bob is really good at brick walling while maintaining dynamics and punch and balance and everything. And he's able to get it loud... Without actually being loud. Yeah. He's really good at that. And that's at a mixing standpoint. Because even his loudmaster is really like pushing it a little more. But even if he were to take his limiter off, it's still the same. So the crazy thing is like you can you can master for loudness at any specific number. But Bob is delivering mixes that are significantly low on the loofs count. But feels really loud. Yeah. So I think that's a good example of principle, theory, practical. Yeah. And we're going to go into the next one because I don't want to spend too much time on just that. The next one is a, is a really good one as well. And mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you here uh, to try to break it down and try to break it down in these three categories is, is EQ always EQ before compression? No. So that the theory is always EQ before compression. What's the principle? Why why would that why would that be said? All right, uh, principle. I guess in a nutshell, um, if you were to actually EQ out some frequencies that are a little bit annoying or standing out or maybe poking out due to compression, you can actually minimize the effect that compression has on it. It's still going to be brought out, but you can actually lessen its effect. Not only that, but certain compressors respond to certain frequencies a little more than others. So if there's a specific compressor that you like, but the source itself is just a little strong in a range that that compressor reacts to easily, you can also dip it down a little bit. And because of the compression, it won't actually sound like you dip down too much. Now, if you were to EQ after compression, all the annoying things that were there are just going to be brought out even more. It's going to stand out even more. You're going to have to do a lot more work on the EQ, and it's going to sound worse, if not, you know, better. But it really depends on the source audio. But EQ on the way into compression, it's really to counteract what the compressor is about to do to your source audio. So so that's kind of like the principle. The principle is we don't want ugly things to come out even more because of the compression. So if we take out the ugly things, like mm-hmm. you said, if we take out some of the ugly stuff before we compress, it can make the post-compression sound better. That's kind exactly. of the theory. Yeah. Practic- okay, now we're talking about practically speaking. Is that a for sure fire way? No. I-, I don't know if we need to say anything beyond that. Like, It's, like, it's no, one of those... It, 
Yeah, <laughs> like, you're right. You're exactly right. Yeah, I wish I can give a more elongated answer, but the reality is no, because if you were to always EQ before compression, I'm just saying that sometimes you're actually cutting out what actually gave life to the vocal, and the compression is then just going to bring out whatever's left. But then you'll realize that the compression is actually enhancing whatever's there, and you're going to start finding other issues. Then you're going to—it's this constant battle of like, oh, if I fix it before compression, now you're affecting how the compression reacts to that source audio. So every time you make a correction before the correct uh, the compression, you're really just changing the the rest of the chain because it's reliant on being before the compressor, which is why for me, I actually have pro Q three before and after I use pro Q three a lot. It's not because it's the best or anything. It's just really convenient for my workflow, but honestly, it, it doesn't yeah. sound better than anything else. It's literally just the graphic interface. That's why I pick it. I like, it's not even that for me. I just like the free points. Like you can had, add Unlimited how many points. Yeah. Like if I wanted to add 22 EQ points, I can, and it would not, affect me whatsoever if i wanted to eq the left channel only then i will if i wanted to eq the sides or the mono or whatever it doesn't really matter uh it can do any and everything i want it to do and because of that i don't really care what your emulation does pro q3 can probably do it too oh this is a good one i just thought about this one too is is b one fist or whatever it is right it's different for everybody but some people say one fist away from the mic when recording vocals or 20 centimeters away or or a thumb and pinky finger distance away from the vocal mic that's the theory that's the theory the practical is or the different principle, the principle what's the, the principle let's the go to prin- the principle. Right. why would someone say you want to be 20 centimeters away from the mic every time all right. The principle is basically going into mic design on a on a, on a very very basic reason why um, capsules are meant to receive pressure being pushed back and forth, right? But if you're right on the actual capsule, not only do you get a low end buildup because of the proximity effect that your uh, your distance is having on the capsule, but you're starting to distort the capsule because it's actually pushing much further than it was designed to initially speaking, unless it's supposed to be like a live mic where you're right on it, gobbling it up. But most mics are not meant to actually have that much, uh, I guess, distance between you. Like you're not supposed to be half an inch away from the grill. But some mics are actually built to do that. But here's the cool thing. Uh, depending on the mic depends the actual distance. The 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 principle is to not overload your mic, distort the signal, or have too much low-end buildup. Uh, the idea is that the mics are usually designed to be about four, six, maybe even eight inches away from the actual source. And that's where you'll get its actual intended response. But now let's go to the actual practical. So I think great answer. I'm going to give a little wow for that. Great answer. I think you're right. Wow. Wow. <laughs> if you're, that's all, by the way, that sound won't be recorded into the podcast. Well, it's I just literally the just sound. the stream. So and I hope again, I was join in us key. on the stream, you know, twitch.tv backslash DK mixes. You can come and actually be a part of these podcast recordings. We start doing these every week now. So, yeah. um, but I love that answer. I think that's a really great answer. Practically speaking. It's 20 centimeters away going to work for every room with every mic, with every preamp, with every person, with every vocalist? No. One, everybody's got a different vocal range. Uh, I love a baritone, but a baritone needs to be a little bit closer because low end does not capture well at a distance unless you're going for a tight low end. What, what if uh, I say What if I say this? Like, even within that realm, baritones singing into a specific mic do some songs 
you want to be closer as some songs you want to be further yeah exactly if i want something intimate move in baby oh so even within that specific example you gave it's still there's going to be situations where that doesn't work yeah exactly and the reality is uh a lot of metal like for all the rock guys out there a lot of metal is like literally somebody screaming right into the face of the microphone and it's because they want that aggression to come through it's not because it sounds better like, uh, for instance, System of a Down uh, recorded Toxicity and a bunch of other records on an SM7B. Why? Because it could handle the pressure, and it has a built-in uh, gap between the grill and the actual capsule. So it was intended for you to gobble it up. And some mics are intended for you to be right on it, but then if you're recording on, like, a C12, like, yeah, usually you'll see a lot of studios and engineers that own the C12, like, be like, hey, can you give it, like, about eight inches of distance? Because it was designed for that distance, and it has this magical sound. But if you're a very intimate, quiet singer, you got to get closer. That mic's not going to pick you up, and you're going to be picking up more of the room. Yeah. And and so, again, practically, there's no rules on that. But there is a reason why that theory exists. So what's another thing? I, I do think, for example, um, we can say this about analog gear. Analog mm. gear always hate, makes everything sound better. Yeah, I hate to bring this up because I said in the last episode that we really talked about analog. I said this is the final end all episode that we ever talk about. You know this. what? We can't talk about it then. Yeah, no, no. I think it's important to bring up still is is exactly what you said. Analog because we even had someone on the Discord channel link in bio. If, if you link to Discord is available, you can find it on either of our Instagrams or you could find it on the the. The what is it? The bio the thingy on the screen thingy of the magic description box. of the episode or on the podcast description. If yeah. you go to mixedmusicpodcast.com, you can go join the Discord link. But anyway, someone on Discord even this week said, I, I heard about this this thing called analog gear, and then it can make your music sound better. Oh, I remember that. Remember I responded that? So, to that too. So exactly, yeah. And I did it as well. Yeah. So I think this is a good one. Like, what you exactly what did you say? You said analog gear makes everything sound better. No, uh, I don't is, think I the, said that. Well, well, I mean, no, I mean, like, no, I mean, that's the, the theory, right? Yeah, the theory here What's is the that. Principle? What's the principle? Why, right. did, why does that phrase, or why do people the even. The principle think that? behind the certain gear, uh, I'll say certain gear, because certain gear is also designed to make things sound disgusting, like the plasma wreck. That thing sounds awesome, but it's disgusting. <laughs> okay. Um, it's basically a distortion rack. But why do, why do but, people think analog gear it's because is the way you have to do it? It's because of this. Um, so it really stems from a culture switch from tape to digital. Uh, if you think about it, anything in its infancy is not going to be as good as its prime. Now, digital in its infancy was really the 90s. So about 30 years. Holy shit. 30 years ago. Wow. wow. Think about 30 it. Years ago. The 90s was 30 <laughs> years ago. Yeah, but the 90s, you know, you had a lot of people recording on ADAT tapes and all that, and then um, you had people who were really starting to see the, the the growth of Pro Tools coming out. Cubase was a thing for MIDI, um, but it didn't sound great. It just didn't sound great. Recording to tape sounded significantly better. Running through actual hardware versus the emulations sounded so much better. So there was this big stigma starting out that stemmed from the infancy of the digital DAW age, right? But nowadays, um, the reality is this. Um, we think about like how much we spend on our gear, right? And we think that it's going to make the world better. Um, for instance, many people say that the U87 is the best mic, which it's not. 
It's not. In fact, it was everybody's poor man's U67. It was like driving a Chrysler 300C, flexing it like it was a Bentley. You don't have a Bentley, stop buying that car. Um, <laughs> so, um, people always say that gear, the gear is going to make you sound better because um, a lot of the people we looked up to always said, well, a real 1073 sounds so much better than the emulations. A real 1073 sounds better than the Unison 1073 from UA. Uh, but the reality is, I, I know for a fact, I've talked about this with Tizio, Chris Brown's engineer. He uses an Aurora 1073 for the longest. And he even said, he's like, I don't care if it's vintage or not, as long as it sounds good. So I think there's actually a lot of points that you talked about. And I think there's a lot more than what we're going to bring up. But some of the principles are, you're right, when digital first came out, it didn't sound as good. No. Which is part of the stigma, and you brought that up. I think that's a reason. I think it's also a reason of nostalgia. People liked... People have a hard time adapting to new things. Yeah. So when things don't sound new, even if it's better, people are still going to be weirded out about it. So there's a stigma around that. Think there, about the, there's a stigma around yeah. like the, the, so many other things. Yeah. Think about the, the, the whole issue back in the day was like, oh, there's too much noise and tape. So we made ADAT. But ADA is not really a consistent medium that we can just easily store and man manage files with. So now we're doing it to hard drives. But all these different things were in pursuit of simplifying the workflow and making things better for the professional and the creative, making things more accessible, more cost-effective. But now that we're there, now that we're in a medium where nobody cares if you record to tape, let's be honest, no, none of your listeners care. They're not going to ask you if you did or not unless they're that one guy in the garage of their parents' house. But um, the reality is this. <laughs> the one guy in the garage. I'm just saying, like, the <laughs> I literally have had one person tell me, he's like, yo, that sounds like you recorded it on tape. Like, oh, my God, you had to have used the studer, didn't you? And he literally did live in his parents' garage. I, I, had, I had the and opposite And that was the scenario. one guy in 12 years. I had an opposite scenario. I went to, I'm not going to say who, but the dude was the biggest jackass I've ever met in my entire life. Oh, I remember. Life. And I did a hybrid mix. And, he, and I went over and I was listening to demoing some speakers that I didn't end up buying because the dude was such a big jackass. That was the only reason and he didn't buy them. That was the only too. reason why I didn't buy them. Um, and he's, apparently he's famous around being around here. and For being a jackass. And for being a jackass. And the only way that he's relevant in the music industry is because apparently he pays his way into investing into a lot of different audio companies. <laughs> Which is not a bad way to <laughs> get involved with a brand and you know money anyway, tends to open doors. We're shit talking, but it doesn't matter because nobody knows who we're talking about. But anyway, um, so I went to this guy's place. And the first thing, so I did the mix hybrid, and I played a mix off the speakers to kind of really hear something that I really know that I created, and and I mixed it again. I mixed it hybrid. There's definitely a lot of analog going in on that mix. He's like, "Oh, this mix was digital, wasn't it?" I can tell. The dude, <laughs> like, yeah. like I don't know. I don't. First off, I don't know a better way to say hi. My name is this, and I'm a jackass. I don't know if there's a better way to say that in that scenario. Uh, also, the yeah. dude was speaking out of his ass. There's no way to tell. There's absolutely no way to tell. No, I've had people who tell me. Uh, uh, I sent them a mix, and I. So I don't know if you know. I sold my summing mixer. My you River did? Eve, yeah. I really? Sold it. I sold okay. it to uh, Bryson. You did? Yeah, and he loves it just as much as I did. Okay. But um, here's the funny it. thing. I actually still really love the sound of that summon mixer. You know what's really sad and funny at the same time? None of my clients gave a shit because they couldn't tell. <laughs> no, it's true. None of my clients gave a shit. So here's the thing. Um, the, the practical is non-existent. 
with analog gear when it comes to mixing and mastering. Yeah, analog gear doesn't uh, practically it doesn't make any now, sense. Now for recording and for commercial professionals. And I say commercial professionals because if you're booking your location to clients, not yourself, you are not the service in this case. Your location yeah, is the, the service. If the value is not who you're booking, but rather the, the location, location, then yes, the location, go ahead, buy gear, buy all the great gear because guess what? For them it does make a difference. They want A1 quality going in. But I'm just saying, if you're if you can only get a good mix because of an analog piece of gear, you're doing it all wrong, and you're probably not that good. Amen, amen. Also, uh, practically speaking, <laughs> I, I've talked about this before. Analog equipment equipment is technically inferior. The no, it is. It, it has higher noise floor. There's no recallability. Every time you get a okay, for instance, you could take your computer with you on vacation if you wanted to. Could you not? Yeah, of course. Okay, you can't take your Tube Tech CO1B or your Stereo Shadow Hills or your whatever with you to France if you needed to for a month because you decided to leave the country for a month and do a recall. And, and, and then your clients pissed at you because you can't do the recall. And I think the, the part of the reason why this is fear as well is, is that I said this on a previous episode, but if you're really interested about this debate, Analog versus Digital, there's a podcast called The Mastering Show with Ian Shepard. And it's like episode somewhere between five and ten. So it's one of the first episodes. He talks a lot about this. The reason why SSL became so popular is because there's the least amount of components in every single um, channel mm-hmm. yep. that it took away the least amount of top end. Yeah. So the whole analog warmth... The reason why things sound warm when going through analog is because those physical electrical components that are in the signal chain literally take away top end. It's making it dark. Not only that, but think about it. There was levels of distortion all the way through. SSL also made their name because in taking out more components, they lowered the distortion through the channel, which is why, and I was talking about this with somebody the other day. Um, Yes, the preamps on, on like the SSL 4000 were nice. But after that, they're whatever. They're vanilla, manila, whatever. Doesn't matter. But the only time you ever hear about people talking about, oh, you know, if you really drive an SSL is when they slam all the faders to 12 and then push the master fader all the way up. And they're like, yeah, you could really hear the distortion of the SSL. It took that much level to distort the console. Like, it was such a clean console it's clean why does everybody want an ssl you could just use your daw and the reality is i'm not saying that you know something to a console doesn't sound great it does but it's also extremely not practical the theory is great the principle is great but the practical is non-existent i i I think that also in the wrong hands of someone that doesn't know what they're doing analog can make your mix worse than anything digital oh absolutely can. i've i literally had this conversation with somebody the other day he sent me a song to review um and i was like oh this uh sounds very different from your recent mixes i didn't want to say like bad or good right away because i just wanted to kind of pry some questions because he told me he was planning on buying some gear but he didn't tell me when he was buying it but he was very eager for me to like listen to this mix and so it kind of felt like he bought a new toy because I know how I am when I buy a new toy. And sure enough, he told me he spent about ten grand. He bought himself a bus compressor. He bought himself a stereo bus EQ, uh, both of them from Manly. Um, not saying that they're bad at all. He got a mastering massive passive. These are really, really great. Yeah, actually. he got a mastering massive passive, and he got himself a very mu. Um, we're really ten, great. Gre- ten Ex- grand between two pieces. Excellent. 
Oh my god, like, I'd love to own that. Even yeah. if, even though we're saying all this about Highly analog regarded. gear, yeah, I'd still love to have one. Which, by the way, please stick around. If if you're like, I'm going to shut these guys off and I'm going to leave them a one star review because they hate analog gear. Please don't be that guy. We're about to get to the point of why we're talking about why it is good. Yeah. We're about to get to that point. Yeah. I promise. So hang in there. Don't leave us a one star review yet. Don't top off the podcast yet because it's there's a reason why we're saying. Yeah, this we're stuff. getting to it. So how go but his mix really just didn't sound good. So when he told me about the gear, I was like, hey. You might want to back off what you did. I really hear the changes you went after, but you might have pushed too far with it. So so it's true. You can push things too far with it. So again, knowing how to use it, I think it's okay for people to struggle with it and save up money to get something and do a lot of research before. Oh, you, you see all I the gear have I have. I think that's better. You see all the gear I have. I <laughs> love gear. Trust me, I plan on buying more, but that's because... I'm not saying that I'm good at it or anything. I'm just saying that I actually really do appreciate gear. I know it's inferior. I know that it's not practical, but there's certain pieces that bring inspiration. So going back to it, why is analog gear so good, though? Sometimes the way that it distorts, the mm-hmm. way that it removes top end and kind of can de-harsh things and warm things up. Oh, my God, yeah. And even a sense of nostalgia. I would even say a sense of nostalgia from audience members and mixers when it sounds to sound starts to sound like something that they've heard in the past tonally. Mm-hmm. Um I do think going through components has a different tone. Yeah. It is a different tone and can spark memories, can make things sound better for that specific instance. I think that analog gear is great because it expands your palette and expands your potential ways of doing things. For example, I still don't think digital distortion or digital saturation sounds as good as analog saturation because it's really, really, really difficult to yeah. emulate the randomness. Yeah. The randomness of of actual analog saturation distortion. But I really like the Saturn plugin and and Spectre too. And but yeah, but uh, plugins but are getting way good at They're that getting analog. good, but not only that, they're getting into a realm of precision distortion. Mm. Like that's what I like about Saturn specifically. Like I actually like to throw Saturn on each one of my vocal buses, lead, backing, uh, doubles, and ad libs. Why? Because I want them to saturate in different sections, a little bit differently. Some a little more than others. But if I wanted to lower like the ad lib tracks, maybe I want to push that saturation a little more in its range, so that it can still stand out just enough because it's the one thing I want to shine in that range. And saturation with analog gear. A lot of times it's very broadband, unless you're using uh, the Vertigo. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so so we're going to do something. Now, here's the opposite. So we've been talking about things, and we've just been shutting down concepts. Let's talk about something that's good. Okay. So, for example, this is, a, this is a good one. This is one of my favorites. I bring this up all the time. On Six Figure Home Studio, which is mm-hmm. a great podcast. I think it's now called Six Figure Home Creative. Uh, is, uh says, um, they say on the show, Brian Hood says on the show, a trip to Ikea will make you more money than a trip to Vintage King or to Guitar Center. Yeah. So one more time. A I trip went to, to Ikea, Ikea the other day. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> a trip to Ikea will make you more money than a trip to Guitar Center. Yeah. What is the principle behind that? All right. So as somebody that – I'm sorry, guys. I don't listen to your podcast. I will. I promise. But it's not because of anything. It just – I like listening to many podcasts. I just haven't checked it out yet. That's it's pretty a good, much it's it. A really good but one. all right, going off of that, uh, I'll say why I went to IKEA the other day. Because you know, I just built my new studio and everything. It's now up mm-hmm. and running. But um, I made a small Instagram post talking about the number one thing I thought was most important, and I didn't talk about the number two thing. The number two thing was my clients want to feel comfortable. They want to see the aesthetic of the room and this and that. Um, IKEA got me some great curtains. It got me a great 
table. It got me great everything else that helped create a vibe and a comfortable space for my clients to exist in. The number one most important thing was for me was acoustic treatment. But if I go to Guitar Center, I'm going to buy a guitar. I'm going to buy a guitar amp that cha- does nothing for me. It doesn't. There's no ROI in that. But you know what? There is ROI. ROI. Return on investment. Yeah. You know what does have a good ROI? Lighting. Mm. Ambience. Mm. Like and you know the crazy figurines thing is, that are yes, cute. Yes, yes, Pokemon. Um, <laughs> like those Sully S- sneakers that you display and goopy big neck birds. big bird. Goopy neck, <laughs> goopy <laughs> neck big bird. That's an inside joke that only the people on the stream get. So come join soon, us on Twitch if you're listening. Soon on enough, you will be chopstick big bird. <laughs> chopstick big bird. But yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, I think having gone to IKEA, I had two sessions yesterday. I had a, a remote one and I had an in-person one. And the cool thing is the first thing the guy said when he walked through the doors was, wow, this is really cool. This is comfy. I feel like I'm at home. Yeah. So the, pra- so the theory is that clients will appreciate and value the way that a studio looks and, and feels itself. and presents itself more than equipment. And you can spend a lot less money. You can spend an equal amount. All right, if I bought an Elasia Mastering EQ for like, what is it, six, seven grand, I think, right now, you know how good I can make my studio look and feel and actually like walk in, have my own espresso machine and everything for the same amount of money. For the same amount of money, you could attract a much wider audience than that one guy in his parents' garage. And honestly, I will say, if you have a client that comes to you because you have a specific piece of gear, I'm going to... I'm going to bet nine times out of 10, I would put physical money down nine times out of 10 that that client is a red flag. That is the definition of a red flag client. Mm. What, <laughs> like, if, what if that piece of gear is your monitors? Okay. Are they renting the monitors or are they renting you as the engineer? Because if this no, client, no, 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 no. What if this client has never worked with you before, but they recognize your taste? Rather than, okay, they, they booked you so, because they so said. So now your value and their trust is that you have the same monitors. No, no, no. They don't not, trust not you, the they same trust monitors. The no, same no, no, no. I'd say, whoa. I've talked to a lot of engineers, but not a lot of engineers know about Strauss. But this guy knows about Strauss. Oh, then this he guy must, know must what he's be. Doing. Uh, he must know what he's doing. Uh, See, okay, if it's like okay. he has a tube tech CO1B, well, so does everybody in their grandmother. Well, then you could do, but then that would just attract a different audience. That wouldn't, that's, there's not one that's, piece of gear that would attract point. more than another. But that's my point. See, some gear does help you with your work. In a commercial and you can, sense. Too. In a commercial sense, but also in a personal sense, like some gear just helps build trust. It's not the tube tech. The tube tech is just commercially requested. Okay. It has nothing to do with your skill. Okay. So no, no, buying no, yeah. gear, commercial would definitely matter. Yeah. Yeah, definitely matter. yeah. But something like if somebody came to your studio and said, Oh wow, you have ATCs, but they're like the smaller ones, they're not the big boys. I'm I'm usually not seeing that as a red flag. It's usually when you have Augsburgers that it's a red flag. Or like, bro, you don't have is this artist that's sipping on lean and is like, bro, you don't have the 1073 by Neve. I heard that was the best one. Oh, and the C800G. No, that's a red flag all day long. The C800G. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's right. So anyway. there's, there's certain gear that's always a red flag. And I will say, personally, commercial or personal or hobbyist enthusiast, mm-hmm. aesthetics, 100% way better in, uh, investment and better ROI than any sort of gear ever. That's the practical. It's made me more money. It'll make you more money. I promise you right now. Yep. Spend money on your aesthetics and keep it clean. Pick an aesthetic. Go on Pinterest and okay, just paint on. a bunch of like studios that inspire you and looks that inspire you. 
Just just get in. Be full on creative. What's his name? Bobby on Queer Eye. The, uh, the I have no designer. idea. <laughs> be like Bobby and just think like Bobby. And the interior design is important. And also, he's the hardest working one on that show. BLB. BLB. Be like Bobby. Be like Bobby. <laughs> but no, I had to put my hand down on that one. I, I can't say foot down because nobody can see my foot. But okay. I had to put my ha- hand down on that. What's one. that? Spend the most money on treatment. Oh. Fuck your aesthetics. If your room looks great and sounds like shit, which I kid you not, you know that I actually quit working for a contractor over this. I was actually building and designing studios for a lot of like major players, multi-platinum, Grammy Award winning artists and everything. But the reason I left- Hold on, the, you want to drop more? You want to drop more? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> I'm just saying. The, the, I say this for the, for, the, for the impact of the reason I left, which was okay. he, he builds aesthetically beautiful studios. They're amazing. They look amazing. They sound like absolute garbage. I kept having to install SSLs in rooms with no treatment, glass walls. Um, like he'd build a ceiling cloud, but it was all acrylic. It, the room sounded horrible. No matter how good the room looked, it sounded horrible. Now, here's the cool thing. He was selling that service to many artists, people who are not professionals. If you are trying to take this seriously and you're trying to be a professional, invest in your acoustic treatment before you invest in anything else. Um, Dami, one of our interns, spent the other day, uh, Saturday with me. We spent, I think it was about four and a half, about maybe five hours total just measuring the room, making sure that every frequency point was actually being like accounted for the cloud, a specific drop from the ceiling to get a certain frequency that was being an issue, you know, accounted for. Um, it took us an hour to hang everything, but it took us five hours to do the measuring and everything and make sure that all things were right. And um, as soon as I sat down in my chair, the, it was such a huge difference that I told you I was having really big issues getting anything to translate in that room, even with just the panels hung and just generally. It, it sounds so amazing now and there. All so right. treatment, then aesthetics, and then like 30 years down your career, tube tech. You know what I've heard? As an excuse, I've heard people say, oh, you know, sometimes buying of gear is great because it motivates me. It, it becomes my motivation to then work harder. It it's, it's mm. becomes my inspiration. Have you heard that before? People say that. Okay, like, I'll, I'll say this. I'm, I'm kind of that. inspires me to make more music. I'm, I'm kind of like that, but it's not about make more music and it's not about inspiration. It's rather acknowledgement of my work. So it's like, yeah, okay, cool. Look, it's it's like I've been doing this for 12 years, and it's like every year I buy myself like one significant piece. Um, and the cool thing about that for me is, you know what? I really do appreciate this gear. I know how to use it really well. I don't need it. Like the Subsynth that I bought, the Subsequent 37, I bought it for my birthday. That was a birthday gift to myself. It wasn't because I'm suddenly going to make music. How much music have I made with it? <laughs> like, honestly you were speaking. playing on it a lot. For no, no, no I love weeks. doing TalkBox with it. I still do. Yeah. Like, I actually got asked to add TalkBox to another person's song the other day. That's dope. Um, but here's the thing. That's a lot of fun. I bought it because uh, it was a reward to myself for the work that I've done and the amount of things that I've done. But I've also showed you this in the past, and everybody knows when they work with me, like, I have a lot of outboard gear, and I'll use specific pieces at specific moments, but I don't rely on it. In fact, my new mixing room does not have one analog piece of gear. It just has my Lynx Hilo, my UAD satellite, um, some focal monitors, and some bare dynamic headphones, and that's all I need. And if I can't get you a great master or mix in that, then I'm the issue. 
I think that's a great way of putting it. So on that note, I think it's a great time to bring it up. Thank you to our sponsors, Isotope. We love you, Isotope. Yes, and we I do. do use we do use Isotope. Maybe our last example will be with an Isotope one. But mm. if you're interested in getting some Isotope product or learning more about Isotope, jo- check out our link, which is isotope.com backslash mm podcast. One more time, that's isotope.com backslash mm podcast, where you can get find a code to get. 10% off any purchases on Isotope from Isotope or to extend your on nor, normally you have a 7-day trial period for their monthly subscription bundles. But if you go to isotope.com backslash mm podcast, you will extend the 7-day uh, trial to th- a whole 30-day trial period. So go ahead, use that link, selfishly use that link. It helps us, supports us whenever you do. Um, we're really grateful for isotope.com. So uh all right, so now we're going to get, I think, the last one. This is really interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Isotope. Ozone is for mastering. Neutron is for mixing. Okay. What is the theory? They just have specific tools that are tailored uh, for specific works, but the practical is, why can't you just use it anyways? Boom. Oh, so Why maybe not? maybe the theory maybe the theory would the then theory be is that there's mastering plugins and tools and there's mixing plugins and tools. The only real difference between them is they're going after a specific job, but that doesn't mean that you can't use it. Like you know, one of my favorite things to use during mixing on a specific on on like let's say the drum bus or something is the master rebalance. Because sometimes I get sent tracks where they have the kick and the 808 on the same track, and Master Rebalance actually does a really good job of getting the 808 out of the way of the kick or vice versa. And I'll just slap that right on the track. Yeah, it takes a lot of CPU and all that, but like I'll render if I have to. But on top of that, um, the harmonic distortion on Ozone is a little bit different than the one on Neutron. And sometimes I want the one that's on Ozone instead of the one that's on Neutron on my vocal track. And then sometimes I want what's on Neutron on my Master Bus. Like... Just use it anywhere. It sounds great either way. Great. And I think this is a great way to end. Um, And I want to say this before we end, too. It's like we said a lot of things that could potentially upset somebody. Uh, These are just opinions. And you can have your own opinion. I drink Kool-Aid. And it's great. Yeah. And and more importantly, if you have a visceral, emotional reaction to our opinion, please see a therapist. All right. Happy mixing, (laughs) my friends. And stay saucy. One, two, three. Hey you, yeah you, come join our Discord. The Mixing Music Discord server is filled with tons of awesome information and people. People that can help you out and information that can help you grow your business and to help you improve your mixes. So come join us and find the invitation link at mixingmusicpodcast.com. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line. 
prop or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.